Price. That's the number one technical indicator. You do best by investing for the longer term. If you can't explain what the business is doing, then that is a huge red flag. Some technological change is going to put you out of business. It really is a genuinely extraordinary situation. Welcome back. I'm Hayden Brain, and you're listening to Opto Sessions, where we interview the top traders and investors from around the world, uncovering their secrets to success. Kevin T. Carter is the founder and chief investment officer of EMQQ. While Kevin considers himself an active value investor, a Buffett Munger disciple, a 20 year plus partnership with Princeton economist and indexing legend Dr. Burton Malkiel has seen his career take an unexpected turn. Having co founded Active Index Advisors in 2002, a pioneer in so called direct indexing, Kevin's ambition had been to improve retail access to financial markets. A clear motivation in his founding a fractional share dollar investment platform, e-investing, a few years earlier too. However, it was a subsequent pivot toward China and emerging markets that changed everything. Kevin launched EMQQ in 2014, an emerging markets internet and e-commerce ETF available to UK investors. Kevin and I discussed what McKinsey labeled the biggest opportunity in the history of capitalism by analysing the region's digital consumer revolution before studying Evergrande's impact and how to identify the next Tencent or Alibaba. Enjoy. Welcome, Kevin. It's great to have you on the show. Uh, Markets must be keeping you pretty busy this week. Would that be fair? Um, Lots of things are keeping me busy this week um, (laughs) and the last couple of months. But yeah, there continues to be a lot of um, fear about things going on in China. This week, it's the Evergrande situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I've got a few questions on that. I couldn't pass up. The opportunity uh, in speaking to a China expert to ask about Evergrande, but there's lots of other stuff we want to cover. Uh, and firstly, I'd like to start with a question that won't necessarily flow sort of chronologically, I suppose, but will give listeners an early indication of, of one of the focuses of today's interview. So, why, in your opinion, is the rise of the emerging markets consumer one of the biggest opportunities in the history of capitalism? Well, those are McKinsey's words, <laughs> but you know, w- one thing that I think we lose track of in the developed world and in the United States is that there's a lot more people out there uh, that uh, don't have all the things that we take for granted. Um, 85% of the world's people are in emerging and frontier markets. And even more of the future as measured by young people, uh, those under the age of 30, about 90% uh, of the world's population are in the developing world. And, and, and it's a big deal. These people are moving on up and uh, they want stuff. They want the things that, that we largely take for granted. They want more and better food, more and better clothing. They want dishwashers and appliances. They want vacations and entertainment. Uh, they want cars and they want their kids to go to college. And that's that's the story of the emerging market consumer. And it's a big deal. And, and as you alluded, McKinsey calls it the biggest growth opportunity in the history of capitalism. And even if they're wrong, it, and it's the second or third biggest opportunity, it's a very big deal. And especially for investors trying to capture the growth of emerging markets, they, they really ought to be trying to capture the growth of consumption more than anything. Yeah. Okay, great. And we're going to dig into sort of the investment potential within that theme uh, later on in the interview. But before we do, 
Let's just get a better understanding of your career history to date. And just to, to sort of define who you are in the minds of the listeners to set the rest of the interview in context. You founded e-investing back in June 1999, I believe. So before that business was acquired by E-Trade, I think one year later, 2000. Um, and it was a first fractional share dollar based investing platform for anyone that didn't know. So to what extent did an ambition to improve retail access to financial markets drive that project, if at all? Well, that was all that drove it. I, um, you know, I started in the investment management business at a company called Robertson Stevens and Company, which was a traditional active management firm. But uh, when they interviewed me, they they told me I could start on Monday, and they said, and I said, well, I can't, how can I start Monday? I don't know anything about investing. And they told me to go buy a book called The Random Walk Down Wall Street, which uh, I stopped at the bookstore and read over the weekend and. If you know that book, it's it's really one of the foundational texts in the world of indexing. And the author Bert Malkiel has you know long been a champion of the investor. And so I read that book to start, and I worked in the sort of dark side, if you will, the active mutual fund business. But I I started to get disillusioned by a lot of the things I saw, and I took some time off and just thought about what was. What was the best way for investors to make money long term, net of fees and taxes? And as I thought about it and studied it, I realized pretty quickly that the most important thing was fractional share brokerage, the ability to buy $2 of Coca-Cola or $10 of Microsoft. Because back then, you it was hard. You had to buy. Your commissions were coming down. You could make a trade for $20. But if you only had $100... $20 was a lot uh, to pay in commission. And most people, mm. you know, one of the main things that you need to do uh, to do this right is to start investing on a regular basis as early as you can. And for most people, that meant a few hundred dollars a month. And if you wanted to invest directly in equities, you couldn't do that. You had to go through a, a mutual fund and and those things have high fees. And so if the market's making 11% and you're paying one and a half in fees and other expenses, they're going to make nine and a half percent. And that may not sound like a big difference, but if you compound at 11% instead of nine and a half percent, the number is pretty big. <laughs> yeah, That's a pretty big difference uh, over the long haul. So that was, the, that was the goal, to give investors the ability to invest the amounts they had directly into stocks and fractional shares were required. And so that's not, you know gone mainstream now, but... I remember I just yesterday stumbled on the patent we filed in 1999 for the process to do that. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, you're exactly. You were certainly early to that. It's mainstream now and probably for younger listeners, that's something that is, is fairly normal, I suppose, in their day-to-day life and in their investing world. But back then, it was completely abnormal. Um, so you obviously showed pretty terrific foresight and understanding that that's what the market wanted. Um, but then in 2002, and you mentioned Dr. Malkiel there, you co-founded, I think it was called Active Index Advisors, and that's with Princeton economist, Dr. Burton Malkiel. Um, and was this one of the first dedicated providers of active index strategies? Yes, it was. And, and it was, um, it, the, the category is now called direct indexing, but I when we invented it, we called it active indexing, and then yeah, somebody, okay. somebody yeah. rebranded it to, for their purposes. <laughs> but uh, Active Index Advisors is still operating 20 years later. It was acquired by Natixis Asset Management at the end of 2004, 
And you know, once we had the fractional shares capability, then the question was, okay, you, now you can invest normal amounts on a regular basis, but how do you, what do you invest in? Which was the, the second question. And, and there's lots of different answers to how you go about investing that money that you're saving. But one thing that's pretty much mathematically proven, it, it is proven, it's not really deniable, is that the, the best way if you're going to buy a, a fund is to buy the low-cost index funds because they'll get you the market return minus just a <laughs> tiny bit of fees. And uh, But when you had the fractional shares, you could then allow people to make their own customized index fund. And that had a lot of advantages. It had advantages for what's now called ESG. If you wanted to invest in the S&P 500, but not mm-hmm. own oil companies, you could build your own 50 stock or 100 stock version of the S&P and leave out uh, guns or, fire or firearms or alcohol or, or oil or whatever it was. But then more importantly, there was a performance advantage opportunity in, in direct indexing. If you just buy the S&P 500 traditional open and mutual funds, first of all, there's a lot of embedded capital gains. So at one point, something like 30% of or 40% of uh, the Vanguard 500 fund was, was other people's gains. So if you bought the fund today and there was a embedded capital gain, you were on the hook for those taxes if they uh, were ever realized, which uh, was a problem. But, but you could also get active in the tax approach and you could do tax loss harvesting. So let's say uh, for the auto sector, your portfolio contain General Motors, and if the automobile sector did poorly and General Motors went down, you could sell it and recognize a loss and then buy Ford or another uh, substitute. And and the idea being at the end of the year, mm-hmm. your pre-tax returns would match the index approximately, depending on how many stocks you use, you could get it pretty close. But But you'd also have a bunch of losses, and those losses have value. And so the idea was to beat the index on an after-tax basis, and and it's worked incredibly, incredibly well. I haven't been involved with the the business for over a decade now, but the I think the twenty-year average annual return has beaten the S and P five hundred by I think three percent or more on average annually. So wow. you compound that number over twenty years and. And that's a pretty big uh, outperformance. No, yeah, absolutely. Um, and then if we continue to sort of follow your career history today, uh, it seems in about 2006, your investment focus turned to, to China and emerging markets. It could have been before that, so you can correct me on that in, in a second. But with them, um, I think Dr. Malkiel around the same time published investment strategies to exploit economic growth in China. Uh, you've got a subsequent book, From Wall Street to the Great Wall. Uh, I mean, is this where your focus on EM in China really starts to take hold? Well, it is. So, so I, um, first of all, while I, I've worked with Burton for 22 years now, I'm, a, I'm mm-hmm. an Omaha person, first and foremost. So I, I try to think about everything in the investing world through an Omaha lens and a Charlie Munger and, and Warren Buffett lens. And, and frankly, it was a Berkshire Hathaway annual report that sort of opened my eyes to indexing in the mid nineties when Warren Buffett wrote that most investors, both institutional and individual would be better off buying an index fund, which yeah. was sort of yeah. heresy in my brain because he was <laughs> the person I was trying to emulate on the active side. But so I, I'm, I'm an active person first, but I ended up working with Burton and, 
and trying to push the envelope on things for uh, investors. And, and we sold Active Index Advisors. The deal, I think it closed the first week of January 2005, but we were working on the deal in the fall of 2004. And at the same time, Google went public. And when Google went public, they asked Burton to give a talk to their employees about investing and, mm. and uh, before the IPO. And I, I wasn't involved with that, but Burton was in San Francisco and we had dinner the night before and he went down to Mountain View and talked to the people at Google that were about to have some money. And I wasn't involved, as I said, but a, but a couple of months later, a guy from Google Googled me apparently and called me up and said, hey, I heard about this active S&P 500 strategy you have and I'd like to invest in it. And I said, well, um, that's great. Uh, who's your advisor? Because we didn't work with individual investors. We worked with uh, Morgan Stanley and Credit Suisse and Deutsche Bank advisors and, and private wealth managers. And he said, well, I don't have an advisor. And then I agreed to meet with them and I drove down to Mountain View and sat down with him. He was 25. I was only 29 or 30. Uh, we sat down and uh, I guess I might've been older than that, 35, 34, but, but um, I sat down and showed him what we did. And he said, all right, great. Well, what do I do with the rest of the money? And one thing led to another and I became his basically investment advisor. And then he introduced me to another 10 or 12 mm -hmm. of the earliest Google engineers. And all of a sudden I'm spending all my time going back and forth from San Francisco to Mountain View and have a, Ten or twelve of these guys that I'm basically managing their portfolios for, and then at the same time, Burton had started going back mm. and forth to China, and a couple of his uh, Princeton colleagues had returned to. They were Chinese had returned to China, uh, one to teach economics in Beijing, and they said, "Bert, you have to come see what's going on." And he went and back and forth, and and then uh, wrote a paper that you referenced, and the Google people found out about it and called me and said, can Burton give a talk about investing in China? And I said, sure, next time he's in San Francisco, we can come down. And that was 15 years ago. I got in a car in San Francisco one morning and drove to Mountain View and Burton talked about investing in China. And then all these people at Google looked at me and said, we want to invest in China. And I had no idea what that even meant. I read Burton's paper, but I had never been to China. And I didn't know how you could go about investing in China, but somehow for the last 16 years, ever since that talk ended, uh, my whole life has been focused on trying to figure out what on earth does that even mean to invest in China and how is the, what is the best way to do it? And so that's what, that's how I got involved. And uh, it's been, I, I never would have imagined it was quite an interesting turn uh, of events, but it's been quite fun and, and intellectually rewarding. Yeah, massively so. It's quite a sort of pivotal moment that 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 kind of request and that, that paper being written, that talk being given, and from then on, fifteen years later, it's an it's an EM China focus that that kind of brings you here today. I mean, that's that's really fascinating. And I kind of want to get into your investment philosophy now. Uh, I think it's a good juncture to to get some detail on that. And then we'll return to China and emerging markets in a minute. Um, I saw you described as an active value investor. So is that an accurate characterization in your opinion? Most definitely. I mean, my brain on any business decision, on any, any investment decision, I, I'm an active person. I'm an Omaha uh, person. And, and what that means 
is that I have evolved from sort of strict value investing for sure. I think that's one thing that that gets lost is that traditional value investing uh, that that doesn't really work anymore, and uh, or not maybe like it used to. And and that's I don't think what Berkshire Hathaway has been doing, you know, Graham and Dodd, uh, low price to book stuff. It's more about finding moats. Um, profits is what gives a company value. And the ability to earn uh, outsized profits comes from having a moat, a differentiated product that nobody else can provide. Uh, they might be able to provide something similar, but not exactly the same. And in I think the most classic sort of sense, a moat has historically been a brand, Coca-Cola, Gillette, something uh, about the product. Usually that advantage is gained by uh, intelligent marketing and advertising spending to build a brand so that when you go to the store and you can buy one product for a dollar with the brand on it or the generic one for 50 cents, you'll grab the one that costs a dollar because you that's your brand. And that 50 cents difference uh, is, is where you get a moat and good margin. So, so I'm looking for businesses with moats and recurring revenue and growth. Now, having said that, I mean, my, my current endeavors are index-based products. And uh, the particular one that I'm focused on, you know, I'm not picking these individual companies, but I think, I think we've, we've stumbled on a sector that has all of the elements I like. I think these, these internet platform businesses like the Amazons and Netflix and Googles here these businesses have moats in uh, all over the world, and their their moat comes largely in the form of the network effect. Um, and these companies have growth, and that's where, uh, most importantly, this sector really shines is that they have uh, these internet companies. You know, we've seen what's happened with the internet companies here in the United States and and other developed worlds, but what's happening in the emerging and frontier markets is is even bigger because they've got ninety percent of the world's future uh, young people and uh, uh, they don't have target stores and they don't have bank accounts. And so the growth rate of this internet and e-commerce sector in the developing world is, I think, unprecedented. The, the sector has grown at about 38% a year for the last decade. So my brain is is wired for Omaha, but I uh, Omaha uh, also recognizes the, the value of indexing and what I think we've done is identify that the emerging market indexes are really broken. The traditional indexes have serious problems. And that really uh, the tip of the spear of growth in emerging markets and really the world uh, is that emerging market consumer getting his or her first computer in form of a smartphone and bringing with it the internet for the first time to billions of people that have never had a computer uh, like the one that I'm looking at on my desk. Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, I read your investments or philosophy, I suppose, on, on the Big Tree Capital website. I think it was divided into three key pillars. The first one being great business, so identifying a great business. I think we've covered that in terms of identifying a company with an economic moat uh, being one of the key sort of tenants uh, to, to make up a great business. But there's two other pillars that, that I wouldn't mind getting into briefly. The first one was valuation. Um, how, do, how do you determine what price you should pay for a great business? 
Okay, well, that's a great question. And I appreciate that you've done your homework. Um, so yeah, the, I mean, the investment decision was really two things, what to buy and what's the price. And the thing you want to buy are moats and growth. Um, and the moat, again, will show up with high gross margins, usually high returns on equity and assets. That's, that's what you're looking for in the what, a great business, um, a company that's great at generating profits, because that's what drives the value. And the second question is the price tag. How much is the business? And you know, without going into all the mathematics, it's really simple math. It surprises me how few investors seem to grasp this, but earnings is what gives companies value. And so you want to figure out what the earnings yield is, which is, you know, the, the inverse of the PE ratio. And so if the, the PE ratio is 33, then the earnings yield is 3%. And you want to make sure that's real earnings, not gap earnings that isn't necessarily cash flow. And then you have your benchmarks. You've got the S&P 500. You've got the other uh, you know, competitive investment options, uh, other indexes. And, and then you have the risk-free rate, which has historically been the U.S. government rate on bonds. And so you want to know what, what the... PE is and and convert that into a, a percentage number to contrast with other options like the S&P 500 or the U.S. government bonds. And this is where the, I think, val, traditional value investing breaks down because you might look at a company and say, oh, it's got a PE of 50. And wow, that's really high. That's a 2% yield. Or maybe it's a PE of 100. You say, oh my gosh, it's, it's a PE of 100. That sounds really, really high. Well, the PE, you know, when you buy a, any business, you're buying the future and the future earnings. And so what the earnings are right now that you're dividing the P over, that's one thing. But, you know, if you're invested for five years, you want to know what does the E look like in five years? And that is a function of the growth rate. And so you need to put the PE over the G, the peg ratio, is what you need to really level the field in terms of is something a value or not. And, and that's a mistake I made for a long time as a young value investor, uh, shorting Amazon, for example. Um, and, and so the peg ratio is all that I care about. And Peter Lynch, you know, was the one that wrote the most extensively about this and that I consumed by reading his books when I was getting started. But the peg ratio is really all that matters. And if you can find a peg ratio less than two, that's good. And if you can find a peg ratio less than one, that's really good. And so that's always what I'm looking for is tell me the PE, but I don't care what the PE is without the G because that dictates the slope of that curve going forward. And again, you're buying the future. So, uh, you know, a high PE shouldn't alarm you if it corresponds with a high growth rate. And I like to look at the revenue growth mm -hmm. instead of the earnings growth, because you could theoretically have revenue that's declining. Your fundamental business could be declining, but through share buybacks or other techniques, you can boost your earnings, but that's a, that, that can only go on so long. You want revenue mm -hmm. growth. And, and that's another reason why I'm so excited about this emerging markets and frontier markets internet sector. Yeah, exactly. I think uh, we've kind of covered off that third pillar because the last part of this, or the last 
jigsaw or piece of the jigsaw, I suppose, is trying to identify something that is undervalued versus their long-term value. I think that's the the P plus the G, right? So um, that's that's hopefully your investment philosophy in a nutshell. We could, we could spend, I'm sure, a whole podcast just on that. But as you say, let's get on to the emerging markets, internet and e-commerce sector or, or space. Um, large swathes of EM populations are entering the consuming class and subsequently gaining access to their first ever internet connection, like you mentioned before, and that's via smartphones. So this is the leapfrog, uh, an under or under, a completely undeveloped brick and mortar retail infrastructure. Um, is this the catalyst for an unprecedented digital consumer revolution, in your opinion? Like, is this is this something that we haven't ever seen before? Well, we've definitely never seen this before. I mean, I, again, I'm, I'm not 100 percent sure, but I'm I'm 99 and a half percent sure this is the fastest growing sector of publicly traded companies ever. Uh, as measured by their revenue. And I, again, I, I could be wrong, but I've offered cash rewards to thousands of CFA uh, charter holders. And I've asked everybody I know that's smarter and more experienced than me. And nobody can tell me a sector so far that's grown for a decade at an average of 38%. And, and it's, you know, as, as we started, McKinsey and Company, as you noted, calls the growth of the emerging market consumer uh, the biggest growth opportunity in the history of capitalism. And again, that's a hyperbolic statement, but let's say that at least directionally it's true or, or close to true. And so you had that mega trend as the backdrop, and that was in place well before the smartphone came along. But what's happened is there's a, a what we call a great confluence going on that's, that's powering and, and causing that incredible growth rate. Billions of people becoming consumers and wanting stuff. Now, um, uh, importantly, uh, these people, they don't have a bank account with a debit card in their pocket. They don't have a television on their wall that has a thousand channels. They don't have a Target store to go to. And they, if, even if they had a Target store, they don't have a car to drive to it. So these people are becoming consumers, but the consumption infrastructure doesn't exist. And, and the second mega trend is the smartphone. But it's not the smartphone. It's the computer. We take computers for granted. I've had a computer for 30 years. I had a computer for 20 years before I got a smartphone. Most of the world has never had a computer. So all of these new consumers are getting their first ever computer. It's not on their desk. It's in their pocket. And in most cases, it doesn't have an Apple logo because we're talking about $50, $60, $80 smartphones made in China and running on Android. And they're getting better every year and more affordable every year. And they are bringing... The third megatrend with it, which is a megatrend that I was very, very early in adopting in 1995 in San Francisco, I got the internet for the first time over a telephone line with a modem. Then the internet went onto a cable. Well, now the internet just shows up in my pocket. Well, guess what? Western China, India, Africa, these places have never been wired. And so as these billions of people get that first ever computer in their pocket, they're also getting the internet for the first time. And this is happening today. 
This is hundreds of thousands of people today will get their first ever computer and their first ever internet access, and their lives will change in dramatic ways. And they will continue to grow as consumers, but even as sort of a paradox, they're even more digital than we are as they leapfrog uh, what we think of as traditional consumption. Yeah. Okay. And I guess that that revolution, if, if we can use that word, isn't a singular point in time. I mean, if we take China, for, for instance, how far along are we on that journey if the destination is a mature, digitally native market? Where, where are we on, on that trajectory? Okay, well, this is a great and timely question. So if you look at the developing world, the EMQQ universe, we we include every emerging market and every frontier market. And that's about 45 countries. China is the largest of those 45 countries by a lot. It's larger in population by all. India will catch it eventually. It's larger uh, in GDP uh, by far. It's the globe's number one contributor to growth, uh, GDP growth globally. It's China is the largest contributor to that. And it's also the world's largest internet economy. The e-commerce market in China alone is four times as large as the 44 other countries. Right. So China's e-commerce market is four times as much as India, Brazil, Russia, all of them combined. And it's about twice as big as the U.S. And the penetration rate, the e-commerce penetration rate is about 25 percent in China. In the rest of uh, the emerging and frontier markets, which we call the next frontier, uh, the penetration rate is about 5 percent. So China's in the, call it the, the fourth inning, and uh, the rest of the developing world might be in the top of the first. That's an American uh, uh, way of saying it. China's still got a long way to go. Um, the rest of the developing world in many ways is, is just getting started. We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section. Now, back to the show. All right, well, whilst we're on China, let's take a quick detour to discuss Evergrande and the Chinese market more more specifically. Uh, Like we mentioned, we might do at the start. And as I said, I couldn't speak to sort of an EM and China expert without mentioning Evergrande. So I read that their financial whole is equivalent to almost a third of Russia's GDP. Uh, I read that in a in a Hedgeye article, I think, earlier today. So, I mean, this impacts not just the domestic real estate industry, but it impacts national and even global markets. So, but firstly, if, if, if we concentrate on the internet and e-commerce industries, what repercussions are we seeing in those specific industries at the moment in China? Well... I don't think that the internet and e-commerce companies will be meaningfully affected by Evergrande or whatever uh, plays out there. The e-commerce story in China and the developing world is a secular trend that's one direction. I mean, I've still never met anybody that used to have a smartphone. So I, I, don't, I don't see much um, uh, risk to the, to the growth story in the internet space being damaged by this. The broader economy certainly is, is important to the story, but I'm not worried about it. And 
you know, there's from the time I got involved with China 16 years ago, the one thing that I realized from the very beginning is people are so afraid of China. Most people have never been there. They know it's communist and they have all these sort of evil thoughts about it. And, and they're making up all the numbers and the GDP is not really growing and you can't trust the accounting and the Chinese government's going to steal your money. And it's just a constant barrage of fear. And in my earliest, you know, sort of the first half of my China life, the biggest fear was the China real estate bubble. And I'd hear it all the time, ghost cities, you know, uh, empty buildings, and people would send me videos of tumbleweeds blowing through shopping malls. And it never happened. There was never, there was never an explosion of, the, you know, the, this real estate bubble. There was a lot of elements to it that people didn't quite understand, like limited number of investment options for people. And, you know, the store of value, people would buy an extra apartment because the only other options were a bank account with a terrible interest rate or the stock market, which is like a casino in the mainland historically. So, so anyhow, I, the Evergrande situation, it, it's a real situation. There's a lot of money involved, um, a lot of debt. And leverage is always a killer in all sorts of ways. So this is a leverage problem. But the reality is the Chinese government is very smart, the, particularly on the, the financial sector. These people are well-educated. Most of them have gone to our best colleges. Some of them have taught at our best colleges. And be, also because the Chinese financial system is, is not closed off completely, but relative to other markets, it's relatively uh, closed off. They'll be able to handle this. There's nobody that's more experienced in handling bad debt uh, crises than the Chinese, and they have a great balance sheet, and they're smart. And so there'll be some some pain in this unwinding of this, but I don't think it has any chance at all of, of blowing up the Chinese economy. And that's the other thing. Every time there's a China problem, people will have some quote about this is... You know, I remember Jim Chanos and Burton did a China sort of debate about a decade ago. And people asked me afterwards, who won the debate? And I said, I don't know. I, I was scared when I walked out of there because Jim Chanos had all these statistics about there's enough, you know, concrete for every a thousand square feet for every man, woman, child in China and all these stats. And so I'm not I'm not worried about this Evergrande thing. Um I'm sure it'll, again, a lot of people are going to lose some money, but I don't think it's going to destroy the China story. Uh, and I, again, and just, if you just think about it, I mean, I know people have been calling it the Lehman moment has been in the headlines and there's always a cute headline, to, to, you know, that makes it decidedly scary. Um, the Le we had a Lehman moment. We had a huge debt problem and, and look where we are now. Right. I mean, you can handle these things. You can move on from these things. And, and our government, in the, in the moves around the housing situation, did a really good job. And, and I think China has a lot of advantages as well going into it. So I, this might be a Lehman moment, but not clear that the Lehman moment took the U.S. down. And I don't think the Evergrande moment is going to take down China. Okay, good. Comforting for anyone that's got Chinese investments. Um, so I guess the other the, the side of this or, or a theme that we've seen sort of exposed over the last couple of months in, in China is government intervention, I suppose. They flex their sort of regulatory 
muscle against some publicly traded companies. I mean, you have the Ant Group restructuring IPO prevention. You've got Alibaba's uh, record antitrust fine. I mean, you concerned at all that that sort of thing will impair long-term investment potential in, in Chinese companies? I've never seen as much fear ever <laughs> around China as I did uh, at the end of July. And, uh, and it's still lingering pretty heavily. And again, I, as I said, the, the, the most consistent thing I've experienced in the last 16 years with you know, investors in, in Europe and the United States is a fear, fear of the Chinese government. And never a real specific thing, just sort of a general fear that somehow the Chinese Communist Party is going to steal my money or do something to make my Alibaba shares worthless. And they usually can't give a great example of that happening before. And I can't give an example of it happening before, but, but everyone kind of comes to the table worried about the Chinese government. And now they did do one thing in July that I think the intentions were good. I don't know if it'll work, but, um, and this is having to do with the online tutoring businesses. Um, where where the, the Chinese are reforming the, the very troubled online tutoring uh, and after-school tutoring Yeah, that sector. was going to be my next question. And that shouldn't have been a surprise that they were going to crack down hard on that. I didn't think they would actually force these companies to go not-for-profit, um, but they are. And that was the embodiment of everybody's worst fear. That, that for 16 years, people have been telling me the Chinese government's going to steal their money. And I would say, I don't, I've never seen that. And they didn't actually steal their money, but they did something that had the same uh, outcome. People who owned the three large online education companies that traded in the United States, they lost 80 or 90% of their money uh, or more. And that was quite unfortunate for sentiment. That'll have a, a long term lasting impact on the way people look at Chinese equities and the, the fear of the Chinese government. But I think it's, I just think it's misplaced. I think that um, uh, if you step back and look all over the world, there's something going on that's not unique to China. And it is government is trying to deal with big tech, if you will. And it's not unique to China. These platform companies, the Amazons, the Googles, the Alibabas, the Tencents, these things have become giant and they've done so very quickly. Like in, a, in a decade or 15 years, these things have gone from nowhere to market capitalizations and, and power that are really unprecedented. And they've outrun the regulations all over the world. And you don't have to look very far. It's in the newspaper here every day. Google or Facebook is paying a billion dollar fine or getting sued for antitrust in this part of the business. And, and so, so that's happening all over the world. And so then you say, okay, well, how is it happening in China? Well, China has one advantage uh, or many perhaps advantages, but one advantage they have is decisiveness. And they, uh, if you go back to the Ant Group uh, uh, IPO uh, cancel, uh, you know, which was November, first week of November last year, 
Uh, China uh, has very clearly make, uh, made a decision that it's going to make sure that its regulations for all different parts of the economy are in place, that they're as state of the art as they can be after studying our systems and the European systems. And they're going to enforce those rules. And it's happening here too. But in the case of China, they have the benefit of not having to deal with lobbyists and special interest groups and basically money trying to sway those rules in favor of uh, of the companies. And, you know, when you see Facebook's running, you know, who knows how many tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars worth of ads to tell me that I shouldn't be worried about whatever I'm supposed to be worried about with my data privacy, um, you know, they don't have to deal with all that. And so they can very quickly put these, you know, rules in place. And the problem is it scares U.S. investors and other global investors, because anytime the Chinese government's involved, people assume the worst. And it's, you know, they're here they come, they're going to steal all my money. And so I'm not nearly as concerned as everyone else is, you know, having been around this fear of China for 16 years, and having seen the worst fears never really come close to coming true. I think I have a, a thicker skin. And I also just look at, at each of the different regulatory things that have happened in the last, you know, since November, and none of them troubled me. The Ant Group, that IPO had to get pulled. That business was incredibly profitable. And the reason it was incredibly profitable is because they were operating like a bank without being regulated like a bank. And the income statement that they had in their perspectives was very few companies ever have gotten to the size and scale that they were at and the profit margins they were at. And the government was already working to retool the regulations in fintech. And I think in hindsight, it's probably very, very good they pulled the IPO rather than have it come public and have the rules change so that the income statement they were using uh, didn't look the same going forward. So that didn't bother me. And the fact that they were able to pull the brake on the entire fintech sector in November and put in place new rules and regulations and make sure everyone understood them and that they were going to be enforced and then restarted in April, that would take years and years here and get so diluted by all the money spent by the lobbyists and other parties that I think is a real advantage to their system. And the antitrust issues, which also started in November, and got settled in April. Those were no secret. Uh, some of the things that were going on with Alibaba and Tencent were blatantly anti-competitive. And you have to remember that China's antitrust laws are only about 12 years old. And these countries, these companies are 20 years old. So they were operating without any rules for uh, tr antitrust and monopoly issues. Um, so that didn't bother me either. There were the, the fintech stuff all lost a third of its value. So that was a fundamental hit, but not too material to our portfolio, maybe one and a half percent. Alibaba paid a $3 billion fine for the antitrust issues, and they had 80 billion of cash. So that's gone. And the DD situation, that hasn't resulted in any fines, as I know yet, but for two months, nobody's downloaded the app. Um, but you know, 15 million people are still going to push the button today and get in a car using DE. And then on the online education thing, we didn't own those stocks. 
we did have a tiny exposure, 0.05% to one of the pure and smaller online education companies, but, but that didn't hurt us at all. And I understand why people reacted so horribly to the, you know, the Chinese government stole my money, but people don't really understand the, the context of what is going on in the, in the educational space in China. I mean, it was a terrible, I mean, the whole industry had just gotten gross, frankly. It was an arms race of education and 75% of the Chinese school kids were taking school when they got home from school. And the reason is that because of the one child policy, the children of China today, the students are part of a family pyramid that, that looks like this. And they're at the bottom. They've got two sets of grandparents, two parents, and them. And all of the hopes and dreams of the six people above them depend on that child doing well in school and most importantly, doing well on the Gaokao, the, the, you know, the exit exam, if you will, from high school that, that determines where you're going to go to school. And they, the amount of money that everyone is feeling they need to spend to keep up with the other person, it's a lot of their disposable income is going to education after the kids get home from school. And this whole thing blew up. There was a woman last May in Shandong province who became very well known uh, overnight. She's in her mid thirties and she was a daughter and granddaughter of farmers and went through the, the system and did all of her schooling and tutoring and finally took the test 15 years ago to see if she was going to get into Shandong tech where she wanted to go to college. And she took the test and waited over the summer and didn't get an acceptance letter. And back then they didn't give you, this has all been digitized now, but, but back then it was paper-based and she didn't get an acceptance letter and dejected. She left the farm and went into the city and started to work as a waitress. And then last year she wanted, she went, decided she wanted to take a class at the, call it the local community college. And she went to a register and they said, you're already in the system. You graduated from Shandong Tech 12 years ago. And she said, no, I didn't. And they said, well, this, this is you right here. And they, she said, well, that's my number, but that's not my picture. And they launched an investigation and found that hundreds of children in Shandong alone had their letters stolen at the post office and otherwise misappropriated by people with money uh, and with a little forgery. Their kids basically stole her life. And this was a flashpoint. And so the U.S. investors might not be happy, but I think the Chinese, uh, the parents, uh, the average Chinese parent is happy to see some relief from this incredible pressure. I don't think it's going to work for what they're trying to do, but it's certainly not something the Chinese people are uh, unhappy with. So, so yeah, I, I, I just, you know, the, the main thing is, and Xi Jinping clearly is, is moving in some socialist direction that's uncomfortable. But ultimately, the question is, do they believe in capitalism? And I think the answer is yes. If you think that Xi Jinping is going to end capitalism, if you think he's going to nationalize Alibaba or uh, declare himself the CEO of ByteDance, then maybe you shouldn't invest there. But, you know, China's benefited from capitalism more than anybody since they started capitalism. And I think it's highly, highly unlikely that they are going to abandon it. Now, the headlines you get, of course, are the headlines that indicate they are going to steal your money. But the Chinese government has, I think, realized that they 
uh, broke some stuff in the in the last couple months, and and we're a little um, clumsy, in particular with the DD situation, and I think they realize that they've damaged uh, themselves, and you've seen statements from the vice chairman, uh, and. Uh, from the head of the CSRC, basically say, look, we understand pri- the private economy is important. We understand that we need capitalism. And, uh, but those, those stories don't get as much coverage as uh, everyone's losing their money in uh, uh, DD, et cetera. So I, I'm not worried about all this. I think it's a bunch of noise. But you know, earlier, we, we talked about my investment philosophy. And you know, the the one thing that they tell every investor, I think they sure told me a lot of times was that you're supposed to buy fear and fear is here. And on July 27th, I had never seen more fear than I saw that day. Everybody was running around with their hair on fire. Kathy Wood had sold her China internet companies. So you knew it was all going to end. And I thought, this is great. This is exactly what they told me to buy. And so I had to spend a lot of time talking to scared investors on the phone, but I was a buyer that day. That doesn't mean we can't go back to the prices that we traded at that day, but uh, we already have gone back. But with the, the fear levels, fear is still there. It's not as acute as it was that day when uh, everyone was uh, losing their mind. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's move on to that portfolio and we can finish the interview by talking about that portfolio. I mean, in 2014, I think it was, you launched the ETF. Uh, to offer exposure to to some of the themes that we've discussed, uh, the name of that ETF is the Emerging Markets Internet E-Commerce ETF for the listeners, ticker EMQQ. So what inspired you to set up the fund? I mean, I understand the theme, the growth story that you're investing in and you want to offer exposure to, but I wonder whether there was a eureka moment, a specific moment that sort of inspired you to, to make this ETF. There was very much a eureka moment. So you know, from the first day that I got involved with China, which was that day that Burton gave his talk in Mountain View 15 years ago at Google, we got back to the office and and I said, "Well, give me a list of all the companies in the China ETF, because there was there was a there was one China ETF available in the United States. It was re, had recently been launched by iShares, and and I figured that we'd just use that to." Uh, to give these guys exposure. And I like to look at the companies. So I said, give me a list of all the companies. I want to see what's under the hood. And and I learned two things pretty quick. First of all, the problem with traditional approaches to emerging markets and to China in particular is if you use an index product or an ETF, there's all these Chinese government-owned banks and oil companies that aren't, they're not really traditional for-profit companies, and they make loans that they know are going to be bad loans because they need to prop up another state-owned company. So, so that's the, the real problem with the traditional indexes. And what I you know, sort of evolved into thinking was, look, you just want to buy the consumer sector, right? And the problem was, in the China ETF, it was 80% state-owned banks and oil companies, and it was 8% in the consumer stocks. So it was this big imbalance between, okay, the, the whole story is the consumer, but you buy the ETF and it's like a tiny piece. And meanwhile, you own all these corrupt oil companies and banks. So, so I spent all of my time in those first eight years trying to just fix that. And I ultimately concluded that you should just leave all of the legacy stuff out, 
and you should just buy the consumer sector. And there's an ETF with the ticker ECON, E-C-O-N, that is the emerging market consumer ETF. Now, I had nothing to do with that fund, but if you believed McKinsey and you believed me, that's what you wanted to buy. That's the ticker for the greatest growth opportunity in the history of capitalism, right? And it was about seven and a half years ago, I decided I had spent too much time in the indexing world. I had gotten hooked up with this guy, Bert, at Princeton, who was a Vanguard board member. And now I'm making Chinese index funds and have lost my direction. And I need to get back to my roots. And I, I uh, set up an investment partnership for myself. Uh, and once I had it organized and I had my own money uh, invested in it, um, uh, I bought five stocks. And then after a little time, I thought, well, I should see if any of my friends want to invest in this fund with me. And so I made some appointments to see these people. And the morning of those appointments, I made some slides to show the people. And one of the slides was a list of the five stocks that I had invested in. And this was my, you know, Charlie Munger slash Warren Buffett meets emerging markets uh, uh, effort. And, and so I had five stocks, all of which were part of the emerging market consumer story. And the first three companies that I put on my slide were actually in the emerging market consumer ETF. Those companies were uh, trading in Hong Kong, Want Want, which is like the Nabisco of China, branded crackers and snack foods. The second and third companies trading in Hong Kong were Li Ning and Peak Sports, which are uh, Chinese sportswear companies. Um, you can think of them as the Reebok and Converse of China. Um, Nike. Nike is the Nike of China, but the, the, the leading Chinese brands are leading and, and peak sports. So those are the first three stocks, all of them in the emerging market consumer ETF, food and clothing. But then I had two other companies that I purchased that were clearly part of the consumer story, but they were not in the consumer ETF because they were in a different box in the database. They were called technology companies. The first one traded on the New York Stock Exchange was Wuba, which is the Craigslist of China, um, which has since went private in a management takeover. And then the last company trades on the NASDAQ, and it's called Mercado Libre, M-E-L-I, which is the Amazon.com and the PayPal of Brazil and every other country in Central and South America. And so I made that slide, and I looked at it, and I thought, all of these are great plays on the emerging market consumer. The three that are in the ETF I tell people to buy are great. I think they have a moat, each of them, in form of brand equity. Uh, they're growing at 15 or 20%. But then I looked at the two internet companies that were clearly consumer plays, no matter which box you put them in, and they were growing at 100%, seven times as fast, and had incredible margins. Wuba had a 94% gross margin, which... As I've said, that's where I look for moats, and I've never seen a company ever before or since with a 94% gross margin. That's hard to do. And so they had incredible margins. And while the PEs were higher, when you put the PE over the growth rates, which for those companies was 100% at that time, the peg ratios were very reasonable. And... Uh, and even lower than the traditional consumer companies. And I just remember thinking, 
these are my two best consumer plays and they're not in the ETF that I recommend. And I printed my slides and I drove around town and I had three meetings and I was driving home with three checks and I was at a stoplight and a friend of mine phoned me and said, what's the best emerging markets ETF for my daughter's college fund? Her daughter was three. And I started to tell her what I told everybody that asked me that, which was to buy the emerging market consumer ETF. And then a light bulb appeared above my head. And I said, wait a minute, it doesn't exist. And I went straight back to my office and started to work on EMQQ that afternoon. And it launched 100 days later on November 12, 2014. And I'm not a prideful person, but uh, since inception, it's number one by a, a decent amount. Even after our significant declines this year, we're still number one by far. So it worked. And I think it'll continue to work. Yeah, I mean, it absolutely worked. I think uh, when I checked yesterday, it was up 92.4% since inception. Um, and I think you're up 3.7% uh, for over the past month anyway. So, you know. Oh, well, I don't, I'm a long-term person. I, you know, we may or I can't say if we're up or down 3% or whatever. I mean, I only mentioned that just because it, it, it kind of highlights that, you know, the extreme sort of volatility and kind of fear we've seen uh, around China stocks and the, the fund's still up for the month anyway. Well, yeah. And, and, and it's, you know, we've had many times in the last seven years, we've gone down 30%. And this, this mm-hmm. time, I think we're down about 40%, 38% from our high. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's happened before. It'll happen again, but it's always turned into a good time to buy historically, uh, the growth here is going to continue. The valuations are very reasonable because of the fear. And even if the multiples stay compressed, the revenue is growing over 30%. So when, you, when you're growing at 3% a month, if your multiples stay the same, you're going to make some money. And I think, I guess the final thing I would, I would say on, in, on investing is, and if I, maybe if I update my uh, Investifesto that you found on the Big Tree website. The miracle of compounding is so, so important in investing. And you know, it, it is yeah. the eighth wonder of the world. And it's simple, but it's but you know it it serve everybody well who's investing to just think about and review how the miracle of compounding works and how big it is. And so uh, in this story, you're going to have growth that's going to compound. Uh, for a long time, it's still growing in China. Big companies there are still reporting 30% plus revenue growth. That'll slow eventually and, and consistently, but it'll still very fast. And, but in these next frontier countries outside and beyond China, the story is very, very early. And the next decade uh, of growth in Africa, in Brazil, in uh, uh, Eastern Europe and Kazakhstan. Um, there, it's just so, so early, and every day I, there's a you know a Bangladesh fintech super app just raised a hundred million dollars of venture funding, and the Pakistani fintech company raised uh, money the day before. So this this is going to be real exciting. The next decade, uh, the fangs of the rest of the world are going to emerge, and uh, we're excited to be part of it. Absolutely. Well, if I can just finish on one final question, then. I mean, 
it's an EM internet and e-commerce as or ETF, as, as I say, uh, that's the exposure you get as part of the fund. But we've mentioned specific companies and some sub-industries so far um, that investors will get exposure to. But I wonder whether you could pick out one that you think is particularly sort of exciting right now. You know, you've got exposure, I, I presume, to sort of social networking in there, online gaming as well. Is there one sub-industry or theme at the moment that you find exciting? There is one, and it's by far the, the biggest subtrend is fintech, financial services. And this is something that mm-hmm. um, yeah. we don't see it because we're not living it, which is sort of a paradox, right? I'm a fintech entrepreneur in San Francisco, and I should be on the cutting edge of mobile payments and financial services on my phone. It's not me. It's Africa. Africa has the most developed mobile payments market in the world. And the reason is because nobody ever had a bank account. You know, when I walk into a, a, a store and I'm at a cash register, I've got my phone in one pocket and my wallet in the other. It's not that hard to pull out my debit card and put it in the, in the chip reader or wave it on top versus my phone, right? So, but most people never had a bank account. They don't have a debit card. And so the fintech story is huge and it is so powerful. And, and it all starts with payments. Because once you get the money on the phone, you can sell investment products, insurance products, you can provide credit products like Ant Group was doing uh, rather successfully, but not properly regulated. And this is, I can't overstate how big this is as the rest of the world leapfrogs the traditional bank account. And what's fascinating is that in some of these markets, the payments becomes it starts as a secondary part of the company, but becomes so big that it becomes its own business. And, and what's happened, for example, like in Indonesia, the ride-hailing app, Gojek, uh, which, by the way, you know, have basically a million people driving people around on mopeds and motorcycles, so, you know, people don't have cars. Um, they needed a way to facilitate payments. And so they created a payments platform. And that's now a significant part of their business. In Southeast Asia, there's a one of the perhaps the best performing stock in the world over the last few years is a Singapore uh, registered company that trades on the New York Stock Exchange called C Limited with the ticker SE. And they were a gaming company first, but they needed to facilitate payments. And so they uh, got into payments and they're also an e-commerce company and a Shopee, their, their shopping app um, you know, required the way for people to pay for the product. So you, you see a lot of these companies that are coming now are like a mashup, right? They're, they're, not a, they're not the Facebook of this or the Google of that. They're the Uber and the Amazon and the Venmo all combined in some cases. So um, fintech though definitely is the biggest and most powerful part of the story. Yeah, definitely. Well, that's great. I, I wanted to finish an opportunity and I think we certainly got one there. Uh, So it just leaves me to say thank you very much for joining us on the podcast, Kevin. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks a lot, Hayden. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new products, stock reports, or webinars from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. And thanks also to CoFruition for consulting on and producing the show.
Until next time. Co-fruition.